0: If you would now, please turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. If you're new here, go to the book of Psalms, and keep going that way, towards the beginning. It's our custom here to stand for the reading of God's Word. That sets it apart from the preaching of it. If you would, please do that now. The grass withers, and the flowers outside... Lovely as they are, will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So his people strive to confidently hear and heed God's word together. This is God's word. I'll be preaching on Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11, but for context's sake, we'll begin at the beginning. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord, God of Heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people in Israel, which we have sinned against you." They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That's why the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we confess that were it not for your Holy Spirit, these words would seem uh, rather foreign and unrecognizable to us. Indeed, they would not penetrate our stony hearts whatsoever. But we believe that the Spirit is life-giving. And that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words has preserved them in their integrity to this very day. And that now it is the Spirit's intention to bless the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God. Do that not only that faith might be worked in our hearts, but that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit should receive all the glory and the honor. This we ask confidently in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1910, about four years <clears throat> before the dawn of World War I, uh, people were beginning to sense in the world that, that something was awry, and the London Times, the kind of uh, English version of the New York Times, sent out uh, a questionnaire of sorts to a handful of, of largely respected and influential people asking this one simple question, what is wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton was one of the people invited to participate in this survey, and he wrote back what is known to some as one of the shortest letters arguably ever written. He wrote, and I quote, Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. The answer to the question, what was wrong with the world today, G.K. Chesterton found to be in himself, that is to say uh, the sinfulness and the depravity of man is what is wrong with the world today, and it's what's wrong with the world in Nehemiah chapter 1. Thankfully, God has an answer to what is wrong with the world, but I won't give that away just yet. Let's work our way through the text. You have your outline there in the bulletin. Let's consider, first of all together, the context of Nehemiah's intercessory prayer. It's probably worth observing that if I, if I have this right, this is arguably one of the longest prayers recorded in the Bible. Uh, arguably the longest prayer recorded in the Old Testament. And, and in a certain sense, it is sort of like the John 17 of the Old Testament, where Nehemiah's heart becomes burdened to the point of prayer And that prayer that begins in a moment and turns into a day, those days turn into weeks. Those weeks uh, span on and on until this becomes arguably one of the longest recorded prayers in the entire Bible. So I want you to hold on to that thought of this being not only one of the longest prayers in the Bible, but something akin to John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But, when you come to Nehemiah one, in a certain sense, what we have here uh, is is the making of a missionary. Have you ever wondered where missionaries come from how do you How do you make a missionary it 's sort of a playful question, but in many ways that 's actually what you see here taking place in Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah was not born a missionary. Nehemiah was not necessarily cooked that way, but when he learns of the well being of the people of Israel. Uh, it greatly burdens his heart, and it drives him to do two things. It drives him to prayer, and then it drives him to action. In many ways, this is how missionaries are indeed born. His prayer, his first action, is the subject of this chapter, and then what he does as follow-up to his prayer is what is recorded in the next chapter. And so what is it <clears throat> that drives Nehemiah to pray in this way, uh, this remarkably long way? What is it that burdens his heart? Well, remember again that Ezra and Nehemiah in many ways are, are one book. Uh, this is one story with a little bit of a, of a half-time break in between. And so you turn the pages, the last pages of Ezra, rather seamlessly into the book of Nehemiah. And it's kind of like Nehemiah begins this way, and not many years later, we're right around the corner, continuing Our story it reminds me of when I was a kid. I was very impressed with Star Wars movies. Uh, I know many of you are now. I have very little interest in the newer ones. But the old ones were fantastic. And they had this really cool way at the beginning of a movie of rolling out uh, this long line of text that put everything in context. And a million and a half years ago, that was actually cool technology. (laughs) Maybe uh, it's not so cool now. Uh, But the scene in Nehemiah 1 is definitely not cool at all. The people of God are a reduced remnant, back from exile, but clearly in trouble. The fact that they are described simply as a remnant uh, would catch the attention of a Jewish reader who remembers that the promise that God made to Abraham that Israel at one time embodied is that they would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and that's a lot. But now they're a small remnant. They've been shrunk down. And not only are they shrunk down, we're told in the early part of this chapter that they are in great trouble and shame. This is the polar opposite of being safe and secure. The wall is broken down. It's gates destroyed by fire. This is another way of saying uh, they're not only a small remnant, unsafe, but they are openly exposed, to intruders. This is a dire situation. The people of God are a fragile remnant. They are vulnerable. And not simply vulnerable, they are once again experiencing the curses of the covenant. So for Nehemiah, uh, this is situation critical. This is a code red Israel, once again, is not enjoying the blessings of the land. Israel, once again, not experiencing peace and safety. Israel, once again, not thriving spiritually or numerically. So it's not simply a bad situation. It's covenant curses revisited. We ask the question, what makes a missionary? Well, passion for the Word of God and compassion for those who have disobeyed it. That's what calls Nehemiah out. Passion for the word of God and compassion for those who have disobeyed God's word and are now under his wrath and his curse. This is why we meet Nehemiah, who's drawn onto the world stage of God's redemptive history. And again, heroes aren't born, they are made. That's exactly the same with missionaries, including Nehemiah. So when Nehemiah hears about these people, whom you should note, uh, he arguably has never met in person. They are a people on the one hand familiar because they are the people of Israel, but they are foreign. He has grown up where they have not. When he hears about these people whom he has not yet met in person, his heart breaks and his knees bend. Verse 4 described uh, some of the bodily action that he sets himself to. Notice how it reads, I sat down. Wept and mourned for days. And if you read uh, the chapter again carefully, uh, those days turn into weeks. Those weeks span arguably well over a month. Nehemiah continues praying, weeping, fasting, mourning on behalf of the people of Israel, but uh, confidently before the God of heaven. And Before we get to the content of Nehemiah's prayer, uh, let's not jump over the fact of his prayer too quickly. In other words, the fact that Nehemiah is praying is something that we ought to consider. Say it a little bit differently. Uh, prayer is, beloved, one of the marks of a true Christian. Now, I know when I say that, it probably makes some of us a little nervous. But J.C. Ryle uh, would often ask people about their prayer life. It was a sort of pastoral inquiry that, w- that he would make uh, and, and ask, being asked why he did that. He says, well, it's the surest sign of a person's true conversion. And the absence of it would actually make him concerned. Nehemiah prays because that's what Christians do. The fact of his prayer is actually important, not simply the content of it. Recently, my son and I were traveling together and someone, as we were not standing uh, together at a moment, uh, someone eventually realized that we were father and son. He had a very interesting way of revealing that to me when he said, I, I didn't realize that that was your son until I saw you talking together. And isn't the same true of Christians? I didn't realize that that was your son. I didn't realize that God was your father until I saw you talking together. The same thing surely can be said of Christians. A true sign that we are the children of God is that we spend time talking to our Heavenly Father. Some of us us have children that never stop talking. And there's a delight to be found in that. But that's what children do. They talk to their parents. And so Nehemiah's prayer, even uh, the fact of it all by itself, uh, is a remarkable encouragement to us to pray. Notice as well, uh, it is not what we might describe as a popcorn prayer or a one-off prayer, but something that turns into a sustained prayer, a resolved prayer. And why is that? It's because Nehemiah's heart is heavy for the people of God. Nehemiah's heart is broken and while prayer is not all he will do, what he does do begins with prayer. Again, a great model. The people of God ought to be a praying people. What is one of the most distinctive, if not awkward, things that Christians do? It's pray. There are times when we should be rejoicing, there are times we should be singing. There are times when we should be, if you will, uh, reaching to the skies, but there are other times when our hearts appropriately ought to be heavy, uh, when our shoulders ought to be burdened, uh, when we ought to be in a certain manner brokenhearted and even burdened by not simply our own sins, but even the sins of others. And I would imagine that nearly every Christian that's been around the block or at this for longer than 30 minutes knows exactly what I mean time where you're not simply brokenhearted and burdened over your own sins, but brokenhearted and burdened over the sins of other people to the point where all you can do is sit down and pray about it. It's exactly where we find Nehemiah, it's exactly what intercessory prayer is, looking at the true state of the world around us, even the people of God, and lifting those people up in prayer while bending our own knees down before the God of heaven. So the context of Nehemiah's prayer is sobering, it is concerning, the people of God needed help, the people of God needed prayer, and that takes us to our second point. Sorry, all all these beautiful things are trying to kill me, (laughs) but most of you know what I'm talking about. I'm allergic to the things that make me smile. The content of Nehemiah's intercessory prayer is certainly worth considering. What does he have to say? Where where does he draw from? If Nehemiah is something of an inspired author, from where does he draw his material? In in some ways, an overview of the prayer could be helpful uh, because it's arguable. It's not airtight. But Nehemiah's prayer, in some ways... uh, Uh, acknowledges what many of us have used as a model for prayer, that is the ACTS, the A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. If you look at his prayer in an overview fashion, verses 5 and 6 acknowledge the greatness of God. Verses 6 and 7 confess the unfaithfulness of Israel. Going on from verse 8, he focuses on the promises of God And the redemption that God has already accomplished. And then finally he lifts up his request to God uh, for mercy for the people of God and success for himself. It's not perfect, but in some ways it actually fits. There's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Nehemiah prays to the God of heaven. A a beautiful title, but maybe one that we sort of jump over too quickly, thinking it's just sort of a a simple and familiar way to speak about God. But Nehemiah's prayer uh, reveals two uh, big words for a moment, God's transcendence and God's eminence. Great categories. They were discussed uh, last week in a manner in our Sunday school class. God's Transcendence is the fact that God himself is high and above us. In a certain sense, he's very different than us. He is holy. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is above us. He is the God of heaven. And at the same time, the one uh, who is higher than us and higher than the heavens is also the God who is near or eminent, the holder of our hand, as Nehemiah puts it. The God of heaven is both transcendent and eminent at the same time. This title Referring to God as creator is very important for the people of Israel. Very important even to Moses and the earlier books of the Old Testament. Say it differently. What was the first theological lesson that God taught Israel? What's the first thing that God taught his people? You know what the first thing that God taught his people is? Who God is. And you know how he did it? With the opening words of the book of Genesis. Genesis. God is the maker of heaven and earth. But why is that so important? Because Israel had to learn what they continued to struggle with, and arguably perhaps uh, we do as well, that the one who redeemed them and brought them out of the land of Egypt is the creator, upholder, and sustainer of all things. And if he can create, uphold, and sustain all things as he does in creation, so also can he do in a particular way for his people. He is the creator Upholder and sustainer of his people as well as their redeemer. But Nehemiah goes on from simply describing God as creator to using wonderful covenant language. In fact, I can't do justice to everything here. You'll you'll feel that uh, when we're done. There's no way we can. Nehemiah refers to God as a covenant-making God. That is seen right out of the gate in the name Lord, all caps. This is the name that God identified himself with through Moses, to the people of Israel, and he is great and awesome. I love that word, awesome. Every handful of months, I feel like I need to say, we should stop using that word for skateboard moves and T-shirts. Awesome used to be a really churchy word, and we've kind of given it away to trite things. Uh, Think of the way we use the word holy. The world doesn't use that word for something that's not holy. We, we still have that one, but we kind of lost the word awesome. Awesome is what God is, a God who inspires awe, reverence, fear. is clearly bigger than us, stronger than us, but one who makes covenant with us and only makes covenant. He keeps covenant. Nehemiah, uh, if you will, in his prayer, and this is what we ought to do as we pray, uh, he speaks back to God. God, this is who you are. This is your character, these are your attributes. God, this is what you've done. This is what has already accomplished, been accomplished by your hand in history. You've made covenant. You've kept covenant. You are full of steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who not only gives his commands, a God who is the keeper of all of his own word. This line at the end of verse 5, though, uh, reference to the commandments, is a little bit of a segue to the problem. God is a covenant-keeping, creating, redeeming God, but he's also commanding God. And therein lies the rub. God has commanded, but his people have not obeyed. The heart of the problem is the heart of the people. Did you get it? The heart of the problem is the heart of the people. The heart of the problem is not found in God. The heart of the problem is found in the heart of man. God not only made man, He made man in covenant. God not only redeemed Israel out of Egypt, He gave them His laws, His word, His statutes, and His ways. He made a covenant with Israel. All they were to do was to keep His commandments. That covenant came with conditions. If you obey, you will stay. If you disobey, you will be kicked out. God was not vague. He was remarkably clear. There was nothing vague about his commands, the blessings offered, or the promises threatened. But verse 6, unfortunately, highlights the fact that Israel has not obeyed. And so he begins confessing the sins of the people, the sins of his family, even his own sins. And in this we find embodied in Nehemiah's wonderful prayer, genuine humility and honesty. Say it differently, Uh, he doesn't simply focus on what they have done wrong but rather includes himself as one who too has sinned. And that's remarkable. Nehemiah's not down in the land. He's not there where the gates are. He's not bound up in the narrative of chapter 10 of the book of Ezra. But how often is it, beloved, that we fixate our eyes, perhaps even our prayers, on the sins of other people and ignore our own? Chesterton was right. The problem in the world today is right here. And Nehemiah gets it. Israel has greatly sinned, but his hands and own heart are not free from sin. So verse 7 puts it very pointedly. We, not they, we have acted very corruptly. That says it all. What has Israel done? They have not kept God's commandments and his rules, his statutes, and his ordinances. By including all the different uh, synonyms for the word of God and the commands of God, it's a way of saying, we've done it all. We've broken it all. We've broken all of your word from top to bottom. We've broken all of your word, jot and tittle. That's a Hebrew way of saying "From from from the least to the greatest. It took me three tries. They've broken it all. And what is the consequence? What are the wages of sin? Well, it is death. And you see it coming now like a cloud over Israel, in some ways already manifest. Israel's walls are broken down. Israel's gates have been destroyed by fire. Who has done this? The people of the land, the very same people with whom they earlier flirted and married and had all kinds of problems are now the vehicle by which God brings judgment And the curse upon Israel. So its gates are broken down. Its city is being destroyed. Moses is cited by Nehemiah. God speaking through Moses. What did he say to his people? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. Where did Nehemiah write this prayer from? Persia. Not Israel. Not Canaan. Not Jerusalem. In other words, it's as though Nehemiah hears this report. The gate is broken. The city is under attack, and Nehemiah knows, "Uh uh-oh, we've been here before. This is not a new story. It's same stage, different characters. First, the gates come down. Then the enemies come in. Then the people are killed or drug away as slaves. This is exactly how the exile began. We've been here before. We've seen this movie before. Same stage, different actors. But again, there is hope. There is hope. There's a little conditional phrase here, uh, two little letters in English, if. If Israel returns to God in their hearts, God will restore them. If they will keep his commands and do them. Those are two different words. Keep his shamar or guard. Hold in high regard, esteem them uh, as praiseworthy, but not only think about them the right way, but actually do them. If Israel will return to God in their hearts, if Israel will keep and guard his word, then God promises, though you are scattered like the dust to the uttermost parts of heaven, I will bring you back and I will make my name to dwell there among you. What Nehemiah focuses on is not simply the promises of God, but also its threats a package deal. God promised good things and he promised dire things. And so it raises the question, should Nehemiah be confident that God will hear his prayer? Should the people of God be confident that God will hear our prayer? That takes us to our third and final point. There is a certain air of confidence, not arrogance, but confidence in Nehemiah's prayer. But what is it based upon? It's actually an important question. What should confidence in prayer be based upon? Confidence that God will actually hear us. Well, it's not based upon the uprightness of man, but rather on the character of God. In fact, it's very important to recognize that the confident basis of Nehemiah's prayer is not found in Nehemiah or the people of Israel. It is found in the person and the work of God himself. Nehemiah reviews what God had already done in history as a basis for hope that God would do it again in the future. It's like saying to God, I know who you are, not only in your character, I know who you are because I've seen what you've done. And on the basis of what you have done in the past, here I am now pleading with you, interceding for days into weeks into over a month that you will do it again. You are a God who is full of grace and truth. You are a God who is full of steadfast love and mercy. You are a God who makes covenant and keeps covenant. You are a God who redeems your people and upholds them by the power of your hand. Nehemiah uses beautiful language. What is it that God has done? Verse 10, he refers to Israel. They are your servants. These are your people. You redeem them by your great power and by your strong hand. Where does he draw this language from? It's the Exodus. It's as though Nehemiah is saying to God, remember the Exodus. Remember what you've already done in history as a basis for what I hope you will do in the past. And this is how we should pray. We should remember the person and the work of God. And how do you know what he is like? Not only through what his word says, but what he has actually done. That's how you know what anybody's character is like. Their word ...and their works. It is the character of God that gives us great confidence... According to Nehemiah, God is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the upholder, he is the one who alone is great and awesome. He is the one who alone not only makes promises, but he always keeps them. This is the character of God and his great encouragement. Think of all that God has done, redeeming his people out of Egypt, upholding and supporting them along the way, but he is also a God not to be trifled with because he is a God who in his making of promises also makes threats. Though God is repeatedly faithful on his end, the sad story, the repeated refrain of the song of Israel is that they are often unfaithful. God is always faithful, but the people are repeatedly unfaithful. In a certain sense, it becomes a tired and tiring story. The walls get rebuilt, the walls get broken down. The walls get restored, the gates come trampling down. These walls will be rebuilt, and these walls will later be torn down. This temple at the end of Ezra has been rebuilt, and it too shall again in history be. Destroyed. Say it a little differently. Nehemiah's prayer will be heard. This long, intercessory, Christ-like prayer, if you will, will be heard. But history has a sad way of repeating itself, and the stage will again be reset. But it makes one wonder, have you ever listened to a broken record? What's kind of sad is for most young people, you don't even know what that means. (laughs) You've never heard a broken record. It's too bad. But is history simply a broken record, a tape stuck on repeat over and over and over? And the answer, of course, is no. God does have a plan to hear the prayer of Nehemiah. But God has a plan for his people that is better than this. Nehemiah has been rightly portrayed before you, beloved, as a godly man, a great prayer warrior. But his prayers are not enough. His prayers are not all that they need. His prayers are not all that we need. Nehemiah, you might even say, uh, became a great missionary. And missionaries, uh, in this sense, are not born. They are made. But what we actually need, beloved, is a missionary that was born to be one. A missionary not made by history, but rather one who enters history as the eternal son of God a missionary who is stronger than Nehemiah, a missionary whose prayer is even greater and longer than that of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was right to point us to the character of God and God's covenant-keeping ways, All all that God had done in the past as a basis and expectation for what God would yet do in the future. The promises of God in many ways are like a breadcrumb trail, but where do they lead? They lead us, beloved, to the personal work of Jesus Christ whose character was perfect, whose Nehemiah rightly points out, fulfills what God requires, which was not simply a turning to God, but the obedience of all of God's word, top to bottom, jot and tittle. What God demanded of his people was not partial obedience, but perfect obedience, and Israel would never give it, and neither would you. Jesus is the one who not only perfectly obeys the word of God, all the titles given to the Lord in Nehemiah chapter 1 would be rightly applied to Jesus himself. He is great and awesome. He is the one who keeps covenant and shows steadfast love and mercy to his people. But unlike Nehemiah, greatly unlike Nehemiah, Jesus' beloved had no sins to confess. He could not say what Nehemiah said. I have sinned and acted very corruptly. For in Jesus, we have one who is perfectly the opposite, so great and so awesome that he never sins, so great and so awesome that he could actually bear the sins of his people, confessing their sins as though bearing them upon himself, though he himself never committed a single one. And that's exactly what Jesus does, even more than Nehemiah could. Jesus bears the burden of the sins. Of God's people. Nehemiah can ask and pray. Nehemiah can hope that God will forgive and even pray to that end when days turn into weeks and weeks turn into well over a month. But Nehemiah's prayer, beloved, be with me, comes to an end. The longest prayer in the Bible of a normal man comes to an end. Jesus, however, offers prayer on behalf of his people. And when does it end? It never does. When does your Savior ever stop praying, beloved? When does he take a break to go over and confess his own sins and get charged back up? When does he pause because he's tired? When does he uh, wear out because he's just simply had enough and can't take it anymore? This is where Jesus is so unlike Nehemiah. Jesus actually does Bring about what Nehemiah pleads for forgiveness. And how does he do that? But by his own life, death, and resurrection. So, unlike Nehemiah, whose prayer must eventually come to an end, Jesus never ceases to pray on behalf of his people. And this is one of the reasons why uh, we could rightly and highly esteem Nehemiah chapter 1 as perhaps the longest intercessory prayer in the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. But John 17 trumps Nehemiah 1. Because in John 17, we have a preview of the prayers of the Savior, who will continue that prayer into heaven. And even now, as you sit here struggling to listen to me, Jesus sits in heaven, and he's not struggling to listen at all. He hears the prayer of his people. He enables the prayer of of his people and he even lifts up before the father things that you and I do not even know how to pray for John 17 ought to be one of our favorite chapters in the entire Bible I've read that prayer a few times recently to one of our members in a pretty dark place and what a sweet thought it is to imagine that jesus not only never ceases to pray he will never let his people go if the threat in nehemiah one is that once more the people of god would be scattered what does jesus say i have authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those who believe in me and no one can snatch them out of my hand or my father's hand the people of God, beloved, are safe and secure, not simply in the prayers of Nehemiah, but in the everlasting prayer of our resurrected Savior. That's what brings great hope to the church. That's what brings great confidence to the church. And it is also, by the way, the only hope for this world. It's interesting to go back to the original question what is wrong with the world? Chesterton was right. The answer is right here. It is the sinfulness in my heart and in yours. But if the question is, what's wrong with the world? It's too bad they didn't ask another question. What is the only hope for this world? The answer is not right here. (laughs) The answer is in Jesus. And I want to come back to this thing for a moment. Where do missionaries come from? More and more, uh, I am impressed that it would be a wonderful thing to see God raise up more and more people that have a burden like Nehemiah was burdened for the people of Israel. A people, though he had some form of connection to, he nonetheless had never seen by face. It is right to say, beloved, missionaries aren't born. There is only one. But they are made. Uh, There are people that cultivate not only a great passion for the Word of God, but a compassion for those who have broken in or under God's wrath and curse. So what's right in the world? The grace of God. What is the hope of the world? The gospel of God being preached in, through, and from his church. Nehemiah offers us a wonderful prayer, but in Jesus we have so much more. Jesus, beloved, is what's right with the world. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for the stirring prayer offered up by our elder brother, Nehemiah. In many ways, it is a great example and pattern of prayer. All the right categories are there, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. All the right ingredients are there. He rehearses who you are and all the things that you've done in history. But it is also a prayer that points in a certain sense away from itself and unto Jesus And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes even there. I pray, Lord, that no one who sat here today under the ministry of God's word would depart from here only to endure the curse of God and to be scattered far from his presence. But rather, Lord, might we all draw near to you by faith. Might your spirit touch our hearts in such a way that that seed of faith would grow and even motivate us to want to spend more time praying. I would imagine, O Lord, that even as I mentioned that language, uh, that one of the sure marks of a true Christian is that we pray. For many of us, that is quite stirring language. It's challenging and convicting, O Lord, because you know and we know how little uh, we actually pray. And so we ask, Lord, that you would increase in us a fondness for that means of grace that would stir in our hearts a desire to pray back to you who you are and all of your attributes, that we would request for ourselves, those whom we love and even those whom we have not seen, your steadfast love and mercy might fall upon them. And might we not grow weary in doing good. Might we remember that Jesus truly is the light of the world and the only hope that there is for this lost world. And Lord, one last thing. If you are pleased, might you raise up many missionaries from among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.